Hey there. It's the Trista. Let's get down. Spiritual game. Yo, yo. So let's watch. Uh, this is called Unraveling the Greatest Mysteries with Greg Braden on Beyond Belief with George Nori. Gaia, get yourself a subscription. Get yourself a subscription to this. This stuff is great. Great stuff. Yo, yo, yo. And welcome to Beyond Belief. I'm George Norrie. All of us at some time in our life have tried to ask ourselves that question, who are we? Where did we come from? Our guest on Beyond Belief, Greg Braden. Greg is We're an author, gods. a researcher, demigods. and an explorer. One of his latest works, of course, called Deep Truth, trying to find out just where in the heck we came from and what we're doing here. Well, I can't think of a more important question to answer, George. You know, the, the, the key to the way that we solve our problems and the way we think of ourselves in the world, it's all based in the way that we have been led to believe uh, what our relationship is to ourselves, to our body, to the world around us, to our past, Environment, to our nature. future. Children. And what's so very fascinating to me Animals. is that in the modern world, we have been steeped <clears throat> in a story, a scientific story. It's about 300 years old. We mm -hmm. say science began about 300 years ago. It's a story of separation. And that story of separation is the way that we have been taught to think of ourselves and see the world around us and solve our problems. If we want to see the consequence of <clears throat> doing precisely that, it's... But did you know that all alone... Alone, if you uh, break it up, it's all one. We're all one. It's the world that we have right now. Some things are certainly working better than others. So what science has tried to do is what our ancestors have done for thousands of years. There are a series of questions called the perennial questions of life. And our ancestors have always believed that if they could answer these fundamental questions, that in answering each of them individually, collectively, we would have an answer. Makes sense. To help us to help us know who we are. So the, the six questions, uh, essentially, in one variation or another, they begin at, at the very bottom of the inverted pyramid. We can think of it that way. And the first question is the most fundamental of all. Who are we? Where do we We're slaves. We come from. What is the origin <laughs> of life? The second question is what is the origin of human life? Mm -hmm. We're demigods. Because there's a lot of evidence suggesting that it may not come from Our bodies are temple. Um, our world is paradise. The other life is... And uh, we are uh, incarnations of God, all of us. Rule of, rule of nature, rule of nature. Come from. Hmm. The third question is, what is our relationship to our bodies? Are we separate and powerless when it comes to our bodies, or are we somehow deeply connected in ways that science is only beginning to understand? 
the next question is, what is our relationship to the world beyond our bodies? Paradise. Uh, are we deeply connected to the world that surrounds us, or are we separate and independent from that world? Uh, the next question after that is, what is our relationship to the past? And we have been led to believe, uh, history books today, our, our young people in school, are taught that civilization, for example, is about 5,000 years old. It began 5,000, 5,500 years ago. And that there's been a progression, a linear progression that's happened one Into time slavery. that culminates with us and the sophistication slavery. that we have today. That is the story that we're being told. Uh, and the last question is how do we go about solving our problems when times get tough? When we're up against the wall, do we cooperate or do we compete? Well, for 300 years, we say that science, modern science, was born around the time of Isaac Newton when he formalized the laws of physics about 300 years ago. We have been led to believe that the answer to those questions, if our viewers can, can visualize on, on the side of this inverted pyramid, the origin, uh, where do we come from? We've been taught that we're completely random, and the origin of life, uh, the origin of human life, we're taught is completely random. We're taught that we are separate from our bodies. We're taught that we're separate from the world beyond our bodies. We're taught that civilization is a one-time deal. It's linear. It's happened once and that we're the pinnacle of, of sophistication. And we're taught that nature is based upon this model of, of competition and conflict. Mm -hmm. That story of separation has led to the world that we have today. So we have to say it has worked well enough, George, to get us to where we are. The problem it's worked is to uh, separate us from nature and to and the world, and our and our children and ourselves. We don't know each, each, each ourselves or each other. The best science, the 21st century, it's really and, and this is peer-reviewed science. So this isn't theory, hypothesis, speculation. Peer-reviewed science has now overturned every one of those statements that I just made. And we now know that the story, our story, our relationship to the world is a story based not on separation, but on connection, cooperation. We know that the, the physical evidence does not support that the origin of life is completely random. The DNA evidence doesn't support that the origin of human life is does completely that toss random. Out Darwin? Right out the spliced, talk about our Darwin. DNA is, has been spliced and uh, it's proof where uh, the aliens seeded us. In, in just a minute, because that's yeah. it's a very important part of, of what we're doing here. It doesn't toss it out, but it means it's a special case. Okay. Um, when it comes to our relationship to our bodies, our own science now is telling us thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, create precise chemistry within the brain that match each of those experiences. And when we know how to create those experiences, we literally have our own medicine chest in our, our brain to, to create the chemicals in our bodies. So we know we're not separate from our bodies. The world around our bodies, uh, quantum physics now is telling us that we are deeply connected to ourselves, to one another, to our world in ways that our ancestors understood in their time, and we're only beginning to understand in ours. When it comes to civilization, the, the best science of our time, and, and I've had the opportunity to, to physically document some of the archaeological sites right. now that are pushing the date of advanced technological civilization way back, back over twice, almost three times what we're being taught, and what our young people are being taught in schools today. 
uh, we're being taught that, again, 5,500 years was ancient Sumeria. We're now looking at Ice Age civilizations, sure. technological Ice Age well, civilizations. Well, you know, our dear friend uh, Michael Cremo, absolutely, long time believes right. that mankind, intelligent mankind, goes back millions of years and that we might have obliterated ourselves and started over again. Sure. And this process just goes on and on and on. Well, the, the data now is, is supporting some of these theories. Now, it's, it's a little slow in catching up. And I, I just want to say the last one, when we talk about nature, the best science of the 21st century is now telling us that nature is based in a model of cooperation and mm -hmm. what biologists call mutual aid. And we all know that violent competition and conflict happens, and, and they don't deny that. But those are responses to specific circumstances. It's not the general law of nature. So now, when we look at this, this pyramid of these six perennial questions, who are we? We now are being shown through peer-reviewed science, a story of cooperation and connection rather than the separation of the past. People say to me all the time, they say, okay, Greg, we, you know, we got it. Maybe Darwin wasn't right, 100%. Maybe the archaeologists, you know, weren't 100% right. What difference does it make is what they say. It's a good question. And the answer to that is that we think of ourselves through a lens. We define ourselves consciously, subconsciously, through a lens of perceptions. Uh, science helps us with those perceptions. Our families, our communities, our religions, culture, all help with those perceptions. And what's happening now, George, it's, it's a silent revolution, but it's like an earthquake that is, is rocking the foundations right. of everything that we have been taught about us and our relationship to the world. The story just changed from a story of separation to a story of connection and, and cooperation. So the way we go about solving our problems, and I think our listeners all know that we've got some big problems to solve right now. Huge. The old solutions don't seem to be working. And one of the reasons may be because those old solutions are based on what are called false assumptions of an obsolete science. Now, I'm, I'm a scientist. I was trained as a scientist. I think science is good. In some respects, I think we've asked too much of science because all, all science can do is give us the facts. Science can give us information, but it's human experience that brings the wisdom that tells us how we apply those facts to our lives. See, I don't think science tells you the how. No, it can't. Yeah. Or the why. No, it can tell you the nuts and bolts of how things fit together. So, for example, science today is, is telling us quantum physics, saying everything is connected. Scientists are saying, okay, we're connected, now what? You know, yeah. what does that mean? We're connected, how this happened, but we don't know why. And, you know, there really is very little controversy as to the connection itself. The controversy now is coming to what extent are we connected? How deep does that connection go? how much of a role do we play consciously in applying that connection in our lives. So what's happening right now, and there's, this is so interesting to me, is that peer-reviewed science now has overturned 300 years of thinking. Just like that. And answering the way that we think of ourselves. On the one hand, the other hand, there is a, I'm gonna say there's a reluctance, in many cases a flat-out resistance to sharing this in the mainstream. So I'm thrilled to be here with you today. In the mainstream, mainstream media, mainstream documentaries, mainstream classrooms, mainstream textbooks, we are now teaching our young people the very principles of false assumptions of science, asking them to solve the problems that we've created through the same thinking 
that create the problems. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. How much of a battle is there between intelligent design and Darwinism? There's a huge, a huge battle between intelligent design and, and Darwinism. Uh, and I think this is one of the places science is designed to serve us. And in its purest form, it, it can do that. Science has been hijacked in the modern world through money, power, ego, corporations. I know you've talked about that in many yes. of your programs. So Darwinism is a perfect example of where we're seeing this. Darwin put forth a theory in 1859. And he said very clearly, I have one of the original copies of his, uh, of his text. The original title, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, that's the title most of our listeners know that book that's by. That's right, we know, yeah. Okay? That is not the full title. The rest of the title was relegated to the inside pages early in the 20th century. Who would, who would know that? Well, the scholars know it very well because the, the rest of the, the title... The origin of species by means of natural selection, uh, and then it has the word or, uh, the preservation of favored graces in the struggle for life. That's the rest of the title. And that gives us a very, very different feel for, for Darwin's work. And that tells us two things about Darwin. First, it tells us he believed there were favored graces, number one. Number two, he believed life was a struggle. So every observation that he made, that he wrote about, that we're now teaching in our textbooks, he made those through his preconceived ideas of, of struggle. He saw the struggle everywhere. Was he a believer in God? I think he, he believed in a higher power, but he specifically said up until 1859, those big questions that I've just shared, they were all answered by the church and religious organizations. And he did his very best. I think he was a good scientist. Uh, he did his best to take the first step to move us away from religion when we go about answering those questions. 155 years ago. I think he was a good scientist, How, however, and I just want to be really clear, people ask me this all the time, I, I don't agree with what he did. Where I think Darwin went wrong is that he made a generalization. He believed that when he saw nature mm -hmm. in one place, in one moment in time, in one part of the world, what he saw happening there represented a rule that applies to all Everything, nature, right. everywhere, all over the world and beyond, including us. Well, and he didn't have our kind of tools that we have He today. didn't. I wonder how his thought pattern would be if he were around today. Well, Darwin was the first, and I, I share this in the books. He said, I am offering a theory that will move us away from religion. And he said, this is only the first step. It was not meant to last forever. And he said, he was willing for his theory to fall. He said, when my theory falls, the, the discovery that breaks my theory becomes the, the new theory. Right. So he was willing for his theories to fall. The academia of today, the academic institutions are the ones that are refusing to allow his theories to fall. For example, uh, he believed life began with a single organism and evolved slowly over long periods of time. That was his, his original theory, and we've talked about this mm -hmm. before. So he believed that there would be fossil evidence that would support that. So what science did in 1859, they were so willing to embrace his ideas. There wasn't a lot of, of scrutiny, a lot of crit critique, a lot of criticism. They embraced the ideas. They developed a model. And what is happening is that today, anthropologists today, and I have friends in, in the field, and we have these conversations all the time in the universities. Are they battles or conversations? They're ba well, they're, they're <laughs> conversations between us. They're battles that they're fighting within the institutions. 
because what the thinking is, they're looking for fossil evidence to fit into a preconceived model of this evolutionary idea rather than allowing the fossil evidence to tell the story that it's actually telling. And what the story is, is telling is that evolution is a fact. And as a geologist, I can tell you that. I've seen it in the fossil record. It breaks down when it comes to humans. The evolutionary theory, we appeared in these bodies. Which is like something totally separate. We showed up on Earth about 200,000 years ago, George. And if you were to take a skeleton of one of us 200,000 years ago, and if it were in another chair here next to mm -hmm. us, uh, except that the legs were a little thicker, and they think that maybe because we ran more, walked more, more back sure, then. We had, didn't you, have can't, cars. you can't tell them from us. Our cranial size is, is the same, the cranial capacity yeah. the same, the body proportions are the same. We haven't changed in two, 200,000 years. Our bones were heavier and uh, more dense, so we were stronger. And uh, part, part of that is gravity, uh, you know, is slightly different uh, climate at the time. And um, also, this give one reason that shows that we were um, spliced with aliens. Is that uh, we used to pant like dogs, um, but then our uh, when we were spliced with aliens, um, we uh, grew taller and our bones were not as thick, strong and. Um, and uh, some, some, a lot of other things. Years. And that's not Darwin's idea of evolution. So I, I don't know. Is there a but here? I don't want to get sidetracked on it right now because what we're, what we're doing, and this is one example, uh, is that we're refusing to allow the evidence to tell the story. We're trying to force the evidence, not you and me, not our listeners, but uh, academia in, in general, trying to force the evidence into a story uh, that the data simply doesn't support. What story, what conclusion are they trying to reach? That we have evolved from uh, uh, lesser forms, more primitive forms. Little of, organisms of, of along that yeah. chain. Perfect example, there was uh, 1987, there's an amazing discovery in Northern Europe. In a cave uh, underground, they found the body of uh, a baby Neanderthal girl. So, or when I'm in Germany, they call it Neanderthal. So yes, they, they, they let me do. know. They let yeah. me know it was Neanderthal. Neanderthal. Yeah. So That's I what think Primo says all the time. I think most of our, our listeners know that uh, the, the textbooks say that Neanderthal is our ancestor. That we That's right. If you look at the family tree, 1987, they found the body of this baby girl, George. It was preserved so well, and they said it it almost wasn't mummified. It wasn't frozen. It wasn't fossilized. That the term they used was preserved. The hair was preserved, the fingernails was pre were preserved, wow. the skin was preserved so well that for the first time we had really good DNA Amazing. that we could compare our, supposedly our ancestor, yeah. to modern humans to see where we really fit in this, in this family tree. Uh, it was 1987, the results were not published until the year 2000, a very By the way, um, <clears throat> You know how academia has always told us that, uh, you know, the Neanderthal died out and uh, then became uh, Homo uh, sapien. And, uh, but uh, 
I noticed this when uh, me and my, or my friend, my friends and I took the DNA test and actually both of us or I think all three of us had Neanderthal um, you know like more percentage of Neanderthal than most people something like I don't know 4% or something like that 4, 6 um, and um, so what I believe happened is that uh, you know this totally makes sense too is that the Neanderthal uh, there were many different groups of types of people at the time and as as people moved around they interbred they intermarried and uh, so voila they didn't just mysteriously die out they, they probably interbred with with the rest of the uh, humans prestigious journal and nature uh, March 2000 mm -hmm. volume 490 is uh, it was an amazing uh, expose of the the forensics data that came, and they went to some of the very high-profile forensics labs that do the the, the right. high-profile crime cases. The best of the best. And one uh, one of them was in um, in the Netherlands, I believe, is this where it was. At three independent labs, look at the DNA. All right. And the bottom line, the the last sentence of the last paragraph of each report of of the report, I'll just cut to the chase. It said there's not enough similarity between our DNA today and the Neanderthal DNA to suggest that we evolved from the Neanderthals. Mm. And beyond that, that's dramatic. They're, they're actually showing now that not only did we not descend from them, that we shared the earth with them. We had Neanderthal boyfriends and girlfriends apparently during that time. So if we were sharing the earth with them, we could not have evolved from them. So now that changes, you know, the, that whole branch of the family tree. We're, we're not hearing much. Uh, How intelligent uh, was that species, the Neanderthals? We believe they were very intelligent. Uh, evidence of conscious burial, uh, of, a, of a, an afterlife, uh, the consciousness of an afterlife, and the things that they believed would be needed. Could and, we call them the humans of the time on this planet? Uh, I personally, I would not, because there is something but about us. At the same time. Uh, and it all comes down to the DNA. And this is where the DNA is really beginning to. To show the difference is human chromosome number two is where really where the action is. That's I think the when difference. It's the largest chromosome in our, our genome, and it is uh, the geneticists themselves say it is a it did not form by natural processes. It could not have. This is what's called a telomere to telomere fusion. Mm -hmm. So the ends of of two different types of, of DNA were fused together in a way that they say cannot happen under uh, natural processes. And this is peer reviewed. Chromosome now, when you number say two, chromosome number two. So the spliced one. It doesn't happen under natural processes. What does that then give us? That's where they What's stop. What's the alternative? That's where they stop. They say, we have to stop <laughs> as scientists. We must stop here because to go farther than that would be speculating. <laughs> this is what, what the, the geneticists are saying in peer reviewed there was a whole conference, an entire two. conference on human, cro human chromosome number two that was uh, in, huh. in Europe a couple if of years ago. If it's not natural, oh, then it's designed. It's they can't, they can't it's say synthetic. that. They can't say that this because was, they uh, don't the have... The show is from March 2015. So, um, if anybody wants to look up that Nature article, it's a, it was March 2000. The proof. And one of the reasons I believe, George, and this is me as an independent scientist, 
<clears throat> we have compartmentalized our world to the point where it's very difficult for us to make the connections that really connect the dots, put the pieces right. together. We've compartmentalized science as, as a perfect example. We, we say we have geology, biology, chemistry, physics. That's what we call these different facets of nature so that we're comfortable studying them. But if you look at nature, nature does not make that compartmentalization. And our ancestors didn't. They didn't separate science from art, from everyday life, from the spiritual realms. And because they did not, they were able to cross boundaries that we've created in helping to develop uh, answers. They weren't scientific answers, but they were accurate answers in terms of how we work and how the universe works. For, for example, the, uh, the most recent uh, images from NASA uh, using some very high resolution filters of what the universe looks like uh, through the, the, uh, the Chandra. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Like Chandra person. Space yeah. Telescope is what it's called. Where we think there's empty space between stars oh, and galaxies, with galaxies everywhere. Well, yeah. use the, use the filters, and they're all connected through stuff. I yeah. mean, there it looks like a huge cobweb, a yeah. spider web, and that is exactly the language that our ancestors used. They always talked about the the web of creation, the uh, uh, the Hopi yeah. in the desert southwest, uh, spider grandmother emerged into this world and they wove do. her web of creation of yeah. the great god Indra. Uh, in the the Hindu traditions, created the web how, of. But creation. how would they know? How would they know? Well, that, that's the thing. The Dogon uh, knew thing. of the serious bee that is invisible to us, and they preserved their knowledge of the existence of the star Sirius B yeah. in a dance where they dance literally dance the orbits and the paths uh, of of. Series A and Series B together, the, the twin suns. Well, we didn't know it until the 20th century. And they claimed that their ancestors came down from above and told them about oh, it. Precisely. So, so these are some of some of the, the the principles that we're talking about. We've got this this lens of perception that we have been steeped in the, the way we think of ourselves. This story of separation, and and now the scientific discoveries are giving us reasons to think very very differently. So. The biology of Darwin is telling us very, very clearly the new science uh, that nature is based upon this model of, of cooperation and mutual aid. And where, where I find this so fascinating, George, uh, is that the archaeology supports the biology. Mm -hmm. So the discoveries go together. that are being made of the archaeological discoveries of civilizations uh, throughout the world are now supporting the ideas of Darwin's uh, or post-Darwin cooperation. For example, um, we're now looking at advanced technological civilizations that go back into the last ice age. Uh, personally documented uh, Corral in northern Peru, for example. We're told civilization began 5,000 years ago. That's when this one ended. It ended <laughs> when we're told the advanced technological civilizations began. And there were no walls, Jeez. no walls to protect the homes. Uh, and, and the cities. This is a, a huge site. It's a 150-acre site, five pyramids, three massive circular uh, complexes. Thriving city. No evidence of any weapons, no evidence of any large-scale war. It's like a meeting when place. When we go back into all of the other civilizations prior to 5,000 years, we see the same story. Uh, Gobekli Tepe, in right Turkey. now, in Turkey. It's, yeah. it's very near the Syrian border. It's a, it's a tough place to get Tough-right. to right now because yeah. of the war. Fascinating. Um, 
It is rewriting the history books. 10,000 years ago. It now is being dated. They have not excavated to the bottom, George, and it is now being dated at 12,000 years uh, before present, but they feel it's actually 11.3 to 11.5 yeah. is what they're, they're, they're pretty comfortable right with that. For the level that they are, yeah. they say now when they get down to the, the lower levels, so they're going to be looking at 13,000 years. Yeah. Uh, what's yeah, happening is uh, uh, the Gulf of Combat in India, 9,500 years old. Chateau Hoyu, 9,000 years before present. Uh, the Great Sphinx, mm -hmm. seven to 9,000 years. If it were one site, it would be an anomaly. What's happening is the anomalies are beginning to tell a new story. All over the place. The story so is that the history that we have studied from Sumeria forward, so we've got Egypt, Greece, Rome, the Inca, the Maya, all of that, fascinating. That but is only bullshit. the story of the most recent cycle of human history, a 5,000 year cycle. And when you look at the cycle prior to that, all of these other sites fall within that 5,000 year cycle. And it appears that there's another one before that pushing it back into the, the last ice age. The interesting thing to me is that prior to our 5,000 year cycle, there's no evidence of war, large scale war, no evidence of weapons. You don't find the weapons. You don't find the mass graves, the mutilated bodies. Right. The first evidence. And should we find that? The first evidence of large-scale war is 5,000 years ago, Sumeria, the beginning of our cycle. Now, this is one of those places, George, where if you look only at the evidence, I think you'll never understand the story. But when we begin to cross the traditional boundaries that have separated the sciences, so when we listen to the indigenous elders, for example, mm -hmm. they told us very clearly that our cycles are based on cycles of climate. And when the climate changed 5,000 years ago, very similar to what we're seeing now, That's right. that is when the first large-scale war occurred. Prior to that time, we lived in what was called a golden age, or an age, uh, or a cycle of peace, and that the evidence supports that. Now, either we have not found the weapons yet, and they do exist, or those weapons never existed. And for all the sites in the different parts of the world, from Asia to Africa, South America, North America, I would think we would have found it somewhere if, if it existed. So, so there is a growing consensus that large-scale wars, we know it today, began 5,000 years ago. The indigenous story matches that. And uh -huh. it says, we come from a cycle, a golden age of peace. In 2012, that was the big deal about 2012, it was the close of a 5,000-year cycle of darkness and war. We now are in the beginning of a new 5,000 year cycle and the question is of darkness and war well the question is will we perpetuate what we have come from and there's a, a little buffer in between each cycle it's a 36 year buffer so the 2012 cycle actually ended in 1980 and it goes until 2016 2016 is the end of the the no time buffer between mm. the cycles every 5,000 year cycle there's a 36 year window of time of transition so from 1980 to 2016 and it's interesting, uh, when we look at what's happening in the world today, uh, the Kondratiev cycles, if, uh, I don't know if our listeners are familiar with the, the theories around the cycle theory, it began as economic theory, but it applies to so many other facets of our lives, tell us that we are now in a war cycle uh, that actually winds down in the year 2020. Yay. So it doesn't mean we must have war. 
it means there's a vulnerability. Because we're going to get rid of so it. We're in that window. We're in that window. And I would think that would be the, the opportunity to planet. take extra precautions, extra care. When we're making our negotiations, be very clear in our communication. If we can and, just get to January twentieth. Take that extra step. Without this to to see. Without this fucker, trying to start World War Three by nuking Iran. If we can, we can broker so the deal, whatever power. that is. Just because of the vulnerability, again, doesn't mean that the cycle predicts what will happen. It says there's a vulnerability. And this is all based on what we see in the past cycles. 5,000 years ago, apparently, we were in a very similar cycle. And the geologists now are confirming this. There was a climate change cycle that was missed because it's so recent. They thought the climate change... How could they miss it? Because they thought it only happens on these huge scales of time. So the researchers, they, they took data from uh, seafloor sediments, from Antarctica, from the uh, ice core sediments. Right. They went to the Andes in, in the southern, southern Peru. Ice sediments, they uh, took tree ring data from northern Europe. They put all of this together and they said, my God, 5,000 years ago, look at this. It's a, and it's very, very similar to, yeah. to what we have. And there was another one 5,000 years Isn't before that. interesting? We talk about the flood of Noah and all these things. They all seem to correlate with each other, don't they? Uh, they do. When we are willing to cross the traditional boundaries that have separated the sciences in the past. So my feeling is that we are now facing these, uh, it's not just one big crisis. I mean, we're looking at this convergence of... Are we at a critical juncture here? I, I think we are. You know, we, we are resilient as a species, and we know how to adapt. But what's different about today, George, we're really good at dealing with one big problem at a time. So, you know, like, the Ice Age came, and I think everybody's right. pretty much focused on the Ice Age. Uh, <laughs> 1929, Great Depression. You know, we, we were focused on that. We knew how to yeah, deal with that. And we attacked it. But World War One, World War Two. we knew how to deal yeah. with those things. What's happening, we've never, as a civilization, as a global connected civilization, been faced with so many unique crises of such magnitude. Failing right. economies. All at the that same time. At the same world. time. Climate change, what's happening, the social change that's happening in the Middle East. Energy and what's happening, uh, the way we're dealing with right. energy, disease the kinds of diseases we've, we've never seen on a global scale before. So I think this is the invitation for oh. us to rethink oh. the story of us and our relationship to the world. And the science gives us a good reason to do that if we're willing to honor the science, if we're willing to honor the, the data and allow the data to... This is Greg Braden, author of Deep Truth. <clears throat> and this uh, is called Unraveling the Greatest Mysteries. I'll tell us the story rather than trying to force the data into a preconceived right. story that, that we know is, is no longer true. Greg, I want people to track you. How do they find you? What's uh, your website? Website, www.gregbraden.com. G-R-E-G-G. -G. That means it's not a Gregory. G-R-E-G-G-B-R-A-D-E-N.com. I could go on forever with you on this. Well, I think, I, I, and I could as well, and I think it's important, George, because when the facts are clear, our choices become obvious. That's the key. When the facts are clear, we don't need to be told what to do. The choices become obvious, and science has now given us those Excellent. facts. Let's continue talking right about on. this. Thank you. Greg Braden. Thank you so on much. On Beyond Belief. You know, those six questions that Greg had asked and mentioned. I'm Trista DiGenova Chang. Earlier in the program, will we ever get the answers to them? I don't know. But if we ever do, then we'll fully understand why we're here. I'm George Norrie, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. George Norrie, and uh, thanks for tuning in.